Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to ARK's For Your Innovation podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Charles Graber is joining us, author of The Breakthrough. We also are joined by James Wang, our internet analyst, and of course, me, Sam Corris, uh, covering robotics and energy storage at ARK. Charles's book I first found as an excerpt on Wired, and it was by far the most engaging and entertaining book I've read since the Three Body Problem series. And I recommend it to Sam, who basically consumed it in about two weeks. It's true. I also, you know, Three Body Problems. So I just get all of my books from James. So <laughs> anything you hear he recommends on this podcast, pick it up and read it. The claim of the book is quite large. It's the immunotherapy and the race to cure cancer. And we don't follow healthcare professionally. We follow it on the side. Of course, Manisha and Simon cover uh, biotech for us at ARC, but uh, we all kind of take interest in each other's themes. And this book really lays out the case on why we're, we're not just kind of hitting up a brick wall against cancer slowly but rather we've made a pivotal turn since 2011. And what's amazing is so much of the great technologies that we're talking about today came out around this era. Deep learning came out in 2012 with AlexNet. Bitcoin came out around 2009. And I didn't even know about this uh, this method of actually curing cancer coding immunotherapy, which the first version came out in 2011. That's right. You also had collaborative robots starting to come onto the scene at that time period. Really kind of a boom for the technologies that we're looking at in disruptive innovations. Totally. Today, Charles really does a terrific job of laying out how we're going from cancer being a disease that kills millions of people to one that's not just treatable, but potentially curable. Uh, really a huge game changer for the way we look at cancer as a whole right now. Uh, it's looked at very pessimistically. There are still a lot of patients and sometimes even doctors out there who give prognoses without knowing the uh, science that's happening in the lab. And what's interesting is we're approaching this point where you know it's potentially keeping people alive long enough to when the cure is discovered. Here's our conversation with Charles Graber. Enjoy. I'll give a background on how this maybe got started. So I was reading Wired's Twitter feed and it said, meet the harmonica playing Austin. How does it go? And the harmonica, I believe it's the harmonica playing Texan. And it might've had the yes. word iconoclast in there as well. <laughs> yes. But who, who found the cure for, who uh, won who, the Nobel Prize. Who cure. just won the Nobel Prize for others uh, make a slightly more direct claim about yes. cancer. So that was an intriguing enough lead. I clicked on it and then I just, and I read the excerpt. I'm like, wow, this is like the best story I've read ever. And then in the end it says, this is an excerpt from, from the book. And so I immediately got the audio book because my attention span can only consume audiobooks now. I listened to it to a, in, in about 
you know, three, four weeks. And I recommend it to Sam. And I finished it in about two days. (laughs) You can't put it down. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he tweeted at you and I think this is, uh, this is how it got started. Yeah, it is. I appreciate it. Yeah. The, the breakthrough people find, uh, which is the name of the book, not the excerpt, (laughs) but people find it in, in different ways. And having one of the main subjects and a guy that I'd been speaking to for four years win the Nobel Prize as the book was coming out seemed to be. Uh, a lot of people who didn't understand what I was talking about or thought it was some sort of fringe, you know, alternative type of idea uh, were really, really floored by that. So he's he's been a great ambassador for the whole concept of immunotherapy. Yeah, yeah. Charles, maybe the title of your book uh, is The Breakthrough, and it's it's about immunotherapy and the, and the race to find the cure for cancer. And cure is a huge word uh, mm. for cancer. How should people think about why it's now appropriate to think about a cure for cancer when for the last couple of decades, we've been just kind of trying to address the symptoms? That's a great question. And I've thought long and hard about using that word. Uh, spoke to a lot of people, obviously, in the course of this this book. It was not my specialty. I didn't, you know, I had to learn, like anybody else, what I was talking about. And I asked oncologists, researchers, uh, you know, can we say cure? Shall we use the word? And they said, absolutely. We have cured cancer in a subset of patients, but we have cured cancer. And we now believe strongly that we know where the cure lies, what, what room it lies in. So that's, and the, you know, not to give the whole ending away, but it's pretty obvious right right from the beginning. It's sort of like the butler did it. It turns out that the immune system, which has been standing there the whole time, sort of underestimated and misunderstood, um, is responsible for all sorts of things that have to do with our relationship with cancer, how we get cancer, as well as other diseases. You know, we can talk about multiple sclerosis and things. So it turns out the Im- immune system is is central and for decades, uh, centuries, in fact, it was scientific dogma that the immune system could not recognize cancer, that it was that's not what it was designed to do. Cancer is us. It's too similar to us for an immune response. Otherwise, you'd have autoimmunity, which would be much worse, much more dangerous. And that turns out to be dead wrong. And now that we know that's wrong, now we know where the answer lies because cancer is a mutating problem, right? It's us mutated and it continues to mutate. And if you don't wipe it out, it continues to change and dance and it's creative. Drugs are not creative. Nothing that we are trying to bomb cancer with, radiation or drugs or anything else, can adapt. Uh, The immune system is built to do exactly that. And so we're now working out the finer steps of the dance. But yeah, cure is a word that they encouraged me to use. And so I stuck it on the cover. I see. So just, to, I guess, to, to clarify, and I think this point is super important, all this time when we think about finding a cure or treatment for cancer, we're thinking about putting something new into the body to kill the cancer. When immunotherapy is really doing something so that our own bo- our body's immune system can attack the cancer, the solution comes from within rather than without. That's right. And, and understanding that fundamental difference was really one of the big tasks of the book. I wanted to, immunotherapy is moving so fast now that you're trying to capture lightning in a bottle or you know photograph a moving train. It, it would, it's it's beside the point. But marking this moment and establishing uh, a base for everyone to understand what's happening and not only what's here but what's coming. Um, that was the, the the main job of that. And what's different about immunotherapy from the cut, poison, and burn modalities towards cancer, which basically treats cancer as a monster that needs to be destroyed, and you use everything in your power right up to the point and sometimes past it of perhaps killing the patient in order to 
kill the cancer. This is different. The immune system is there. We didn't realize it, but it was handcuffed by cancer. There are secret handshakes that cancer has evolved to say, I'm cool. Don't attack me. I'm a, I'm a fetus cell or I'm something like this. I'm, I know I look weird, but trust me, you're not supposed to kill me. Now that we know that, we can block those secret handshakes and look for more. And so, yes, that's the fundamental difference. It's just unleashing what's already inside you and letting it do the job. And I think one of the most interesting things in the book, like you said, just a hundred years ago, no one actually anticipated that the immune system uh, had anything to do with cancer. And, you know, we're recording this in New York and really the history of immunotherapy starts in New York. You have William Coley. I mean, that story is incredible there. And, you know, how does someone innovate? And it's like the first innovators are always considered crazy people. Right, right. I mean, there's so many things that surprised me about this book. And one thing it couldn't be was boring. If the breakthrough is boring, then I really failed, you know, because it's the most exciting, interesting thing. You just have to be able to translate it. Happily, there is a lot of story in this story. And one of them, as you mentioned, is William Coley, 130 years ago. You know, at an age when when science was booming, the frontiers were being expanded rapidly. Tesla was you know, just around the corner here. Um, he and Edison were duking it out. They, they it just anything seemed possible. And so, a young recent graduate of Harvard Medical School, a surgeon now in the Lower East Side of of, of Manhattan, believed curing cancer, having different outcomes, was was possible. And so he looked for anecdotes. He looked for people who had had those different outcomes. And he found one in a a patient who had walked in the door, a German immigrant speaking no English with an enormous tumor that when they tried to operate on it, it just, they couldn't remove all of it. Of course, it being the 1890s, it becomes infected and he's, he's a goner. This is not going to be a, a good, you know, this is, there's no positive outcome that comes of this, except somehow that immune response, that raging infection interfaced with the rest of his immune system, interfaced with the cancer. And somehow we now realize the immune system recognized cancer and killed cancer, melted it away like an ice cream cone melting down. And Fred Belf walked back out the door and disappeared into the Lower East Side. And William Coley found these records and said, well, can we make what happened to him happen to others? And went out to find and prove that that Fred Belf is uh, existent. And so, yeah, you've got a, a medical detective story that's sort of halfway between the, the Nick and uh, and Sherlock Holmes. Um, it's, it, it's exciting stuff. And so people had witnessed these inexplicable events that biology was not well understood. And it languished like that for a hundred years. You talk about a hundred years ago, the emperor of all maladies, which came out in 2010, doesn't mention cancer immunotherapy even once, not even as a possibility. Wow. And no that's mention. considered the definitive book on cancer up to that point. And it's wrong. Wow. It's that's fundamentally incredible. wrong. Yeah. And that's also very dangerous. I mean, there's a brilliant book on what we've done up until that point, how we, you know, we learned to poison cancer through the chemical warfare department programs. Right. Uh, you know, we started radiating cancer within months of discovering radium at all, which killed, by the way, everybody, including the operators of the machines, which right away we, but the immune system, because we couldn't figure it out, was really uh, discarded. And those who believed it was possible were ridiculed and massively underfunded. So this is a really also a story, of, a story of innovation and what discovery looks like and what real disturbance uh, looks like. I find this to be a really interesting story because it shows that, you know, you could be on the right track and then you could totally go off the right track. So we, we immunotherapy today sounds like a sexy new thing. It was discovered by Coley in the, in the 
20th century, basically? Yeah, 19th century. And actually, there are others. You know, we've got letters from Chekhov. Uh, this is what you don't get, by the, by the way, from the audiobook. I want to make it very, the story clear, but the end notes are just as long and they contain all this juicy stuff, including letters from Chekhov, who was a physician, uh, as well as a playwright, a, talking about a possible cure for cancer in, in that way. And you have German physicians doing the same thing, French. And we can go back to variolation, which is a version of this, which was never effective against cancer. But you know, you, you can go a long way back, often theorized about, seen as a miracle sometimes, uh, even the patron saint of cancer, uh-huh. St. Peregrine, but never seen as, as, as replicable science. So we had that initial success with coli uh, using this super primitive way of a bacteria infection trick, basically teaching the body to react against cancer. And then it was even recognized by official uh, medical institutes in New York, but somehow it fell out of favor. How did that, how did this very, how do we get off the corrective path, the correct path? That's a fascinating story uh, and and worthy of a, a book itself. I dedicate some time to it in the book, of course, but I also, you know, we've got a lot of road to cover. Coley was right, but he didn't know why. Sometimes we we recognize, uh, we, we find something of value, recognize its value, but but either massively misinterpret it or, or, or discount its value. In this case, uh, well, medicine's filled with that. So for instance, all the medical names, you know, this alphabet soup, often what things are called has nothing to do with what they actually do. It's just what, the, what they seemed to be at the moment. Uh, of discovery, B cells for the bursa of fabricus, because that's an organ found in birds, and that's the only place those cells have been found. Now we're still talking about B cells in your bones, uh, which make antibodies, and we're still referencing birds somehow. Well, there no, so imagine these much longer names. That, anyway, so science is filled with finding something that's important, not knowing what it is. And the story of immunotherapy is exactly that. Cancer is complicated. It's it's mutated. It's smart. It evolves, it dances, it, it gets its own blood, blood supply. It's sort of like, has it, you know, it doesn't have its own will, but it seems to. The immune system also incredibly complicated because it has to be prepared to respond to diseases that it's never seen, diseases that may not even exist. A t- there are enough T cells, different types of T cells in your body uh, to recognize at least, I think the estimate is 10 to the 19th power different targets. That's 10 to the 19th seconds would be dozens of billions of years. It's incredible how ready it has to be. And it also has to be uh, powerful enough to kill whatever might come and also not kill you. And so it's filled, it turns out, the immune system uh, is filled with you know, circuit breakers and feedback loops and, and all these sorts of things. So none of this is understood. You can't see most of this under a microscope. You know, the T cells were not even considered to be real uh, until about 1968. Uh, they were people that mentioned that maybe there's another type of cell. They were ridiculed. I could, I don't know. Is this a family show? Can I say? Uh, sure, you can share whatever you'd like. <laughs> it, it was uh, it, when the notion that maybe there was another cell in addition to the B cell, which makes antibodies, that was a helper type of cell that they would, came from the thymus, perhaps could be called a T cell. Uh, this was mentioned at a conference in 1968. One of the luminaries in the field stood up and reminded the speaker that B and T were the first and last letters of bullshit. <laughs> that was the response. And that's weirdly enough. So that's the d- sort of response that gets you off the track of things, right? So in the case of Coley, uh, he had good responses, but and he made a, a medicine, not even really a patent medicine. It was patented. Coley's toxins, you know, Bayer made it for a while. Mayo Clinic was, was a big manufacturer. It wasn't standardized. No one understood what it did. The fact that it actually had anything to do with the immune system 
wasn't really understood because the immune system wasn't under understood. And so uh, then you get more scientific looking things that, that, that seem to have instant results. You can do a lot of damage with radiation and chemotherapy is definitely effective for some things. And, and so these other ways, it's interesting that they get abandoned, even though they're not disproven. So this is a fascinating aspect for innovators, I think, because it was just the wrong time, the right thing at the wrong time. Nobody could understand what they were dealing with. So it had to be, it really, you know, Jim, what Jim Allison, who won the Nobel and those who have come after were able to take this stuff and, and a lot more, but they had the advantage of DNA sequencing and, and all sorts of uh, scientific capacity that we didn't have. So it really speaks to, you know, sometimes you're going to strike gold. We may have already found everything we need to cure cancer, to, 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 to disrupt all sorts of industries, but we just don't necessarily have the rest of the matrix built around it or the context uh, for it. And that's certainly the, the, the case here. And I think we see that not just in the cancer and healthcare space. I mean, James, you cover deep learning. I feel like there's kind of a parallel there with AI totally research as well. Totally different story, but you know, artificial intelligence has been a topic forever. In the 50s, neural networks became uh, discovered and, and shown to work for re recognizing shapes. Uh, Cornell Navy Labs, uh, they, they worked on that. And at the time, it was hailed as it was going to solve artificial general intelligence. Uh, it didn't. And then it was abandoned. And then neural networks were... The, the papers, if you mention neural networks, you didn't get published for a couple of decades. And right. then... Guess what time? 2012, the first neural network paper actually gets massive, massive press because it, it recognized not just shapes, but natural photographs with like 84% accuracy. Mm. And all the AI we talk about after that is basically deep learning and neural networks. It's just like uh, just like immunotherapy. We, it was discovered, it was abandoned, and was picked up again because now we have much more powerful chips and much larger data sets. Right. It, it, and, and there's a, I don't often quote Goethe, I swear, but there was a, a <laughs> I do in the book once because he says something that other people have said in other ways, but we search where there is light. So it's easy to add on to our knowledge. But uh, but when you were dealing in total darkness, as so many of these fields were, um, you, you don't know what you're looking for. You don't necessarily know when you'll find it, and you certainly don't know where it is. And so that makes it very hard to write a grant, to get a, to build a business proposal, to have you know to find funding, to have your peers not ridicule you. And then you have these buzzwords, right? Immunotherapists were the laughing stock of the community, and not not casually. I mean, openly ridiculed as being dreamers at at you know at, at best, maybe quacks at worst. And now there isn't a company, there are only two types of pharmaceutical companies, those who are in immunotherapy and those who want to be. So it's changed entirely, but you couldn't. So interestingly enough, the big innovations in this field came from people who were not died in the wool, true believer, cancer immunotherapists, because that was a big red flag. These were just people studying what they're studying and not using any of the wrong buzzwords, um, and who found, in the case you, you may recall from the book, people that didn't know they were part of some bigger fight, making these discoveries, carrying it forward, and hearing back, well, that's impossible. That data can't be correct because we know otherwise. Now, this is not a scientific reaction to, to science, and this really opened the eyes of a lot of people. So we have to examine to what extent we really know things and to be able to look at things with, uh, with really fresh eyes if we're really looking to disrupt and innovate. So I think it's probably helpful to some of our listeners, and what you do so well in the book, is to dive into you know, the actual mechanics of how this works. Normally, your body gets an infection, and then what's the normal immune response to that? And then how does cancer trick our immune system? What's that process look like? Right. I put very simply, the immune system's designed to recognize what's not supposed to be in the body and get rid of it. 
usually essentially eat it or kill it. It also takes care of rogue cells, your own cells, when, they're, when they mess up, when they're reproducing. And that turns out to be all the time. In fact, you're getting const- over the course of this conversation, you've gotten cancer many dozens, if not hundreds of times and cured it all by yourself <laughs> because the cells, you know, if a cell making its own daughter cells was a clean process and an orderly process, we'd probably still be amino acids reassembling ourselves in some pond somewhere. Evolution depends upon mistake. And so we are, we have this built into us. So this is good. We, we, we can't really separate ourselves from cancer because mistakes that work, mistakes that can actually live on is who we are. So, however, most of those are not, you know, beneficial to the body. Most self-destruct, they can't reproduce, they can't survive, they can't, uh, you know, garner. But then every once in a while, infinite rolls of the dice, invariably, you end up with that cell that does, is able to support itself, is able to reproduce itself without, with abandon, doesn't want to kill itself, doesn't, it can get its own blood supply. That's cancer. And it's a mutation, so it looks different than your normal body cells. And when I say looks different, you can sort of think of, I think of these things like, you know, like Christmas ham studded with cloves. They're covered with proteins. And there are certain proteins that are unique to cancer that you don't find on, on normal body cells. The more unique proteins you have, probably the weirder that cell is, the more mutated it is. And the more it needs a disguise, it needs some sort of a trick to tell the immune system, hey, despite what you're seeing, I'm okay. Now, as it happens, the, as I said, the developing fetus needs some of those same tricks. So one of the ways it does that is it uses essentially the same secret handshake that the body cells use to say, I know I look different, but I'm okay. These are, these are interactions between ligands and, and proteins, receptors on the, well, between the T cell and the tumor. Or it essentially, you could think of it as pressing a button, down-regulating the T cell, um, saying, don't even bother. There is a number, of, a number of, of tricks, you can say. And we're discovering new tricks all the time. What the breakthrough is the recognition of those tricks, that those tricks exist. Nobody, nobody, nobody understood why the cancer and the immune system didn't seem to interact. Nobody could say why you don't seem to have even the sniffles when you have cancer. You know when you've got a cold, but you need a test to know whether you've got it, this deadly disease. It's because the immune system was actively shutting down, being shut down by cancer. And we're learning no tricks every, every week, by the way. And, and, and now that we've changed our mind about whether the immune system can recognize cancer as foreign and kill it. All we're doing basically is blocking those tricks. We're liberating it to do what it's, what it's designed to do. And it turns out that not every type of cancer has the same trick. And so we're developing a whole host of different types. Uh, those, those secret handshakes that I talked about, those are called checkpoint inhibitors. The checkpoint is this constant questioning by the immune system. Are you sure? Should I still be attacking? Should I, I mean, you, you said there was a problem, but is it done? You know, because you do want it to stop or else, you know, chronic inflammation, autoimmunity, all sorts of problems. Those, uh, utilizing those, those questions, answer having cancer, ask those questions, especially heavily mutated cancers. So the uglier cancers that I'm talking about, skin cancer, kidney cancer, cancers that are exposed to a lot of bad stuff, you know, UV or, or, or concentrated toxins, they're the ones that are the most mutated. They're the ones that need the biggest, most obvious secret handshakes. They, they really need a disguise. Turns out there are other tricks, though, and other ways to shut down the immune system. And that's and what we're doing now, the first big discovery was that secret handshake. The second was, oh my goodness, more secret handshakes. That first secret handshake, that's what Jim Allison won the, the, the Nobel for. That's the discovery of CTLA-4. Again, could be called FRED. And that was just in, was that 2011? That was 2011, right. yeah. And the approvals came after that. 
Then there was the discovery of a really much more straightforward, you know, the, the metaphors are, are imperfect. We don't have time to get into <laughs> it, but PD-1, PD-L1, these are two ligands that are, this is, this is a handshake between the, the tumor and the immune system. And we, that discovering that, blocking that, much more, uh, actually a, a much more straightforward immune response is, is generated. We, that first generation, you could think of it more like the brakes. Cancer is putting the brakes on the immune response. Um, you, we now know how to block it from doing that, but blocking the brakes on immune response can have some pretty hairy side effects. You know, helpful to know about and try and regulate, but uh, that second generation, the PD-1, PD-L1, didn't have that side effect. When you block it, it just worked. That Tasku Hanzo uh, won that, well, the Nobel for, for that this last year, and that really was a, a bigger deal. It didn't, wasn't proof of concept, but it was really the beginning of uh, the low-hanging fruit, uh, if, if you will. We now know there are more secret handshakes to be blocked. Uh, we also now recognize, now that we have proof of concept, and this is the big deal. So the breakthrough, if I tried to be completely up to date, and I can tell you what's changed since then, but if I tried to be completely up to date and do and not build a foundation for everyone to be able to understand patients, anyone who likes to science read, a human being to say, here's what's coming, here's what's different. I'd be wrong. The book would be worthless in a, in a year. This is meant to last, you know, hopefully generations. Because the big, the big deal here isn't any one silver bullet drug. It's a complete 180 change in our understanding of the immune system and cancer. And that, you know, it's like we lost our car keys somewhere in New York City over the course of the last two weeks. That's what trying to cure cancer looked like until now. Now we know that we've lost our car keys in this one room, that we have a mutating solution to a mutating problem. And eventually it's there. It turns out to be more complicated than these simple handshakes. It turns out there are more feedback loops and it's a more beautiful complex dance but we now we know that's what we need to decode these two initial successes the, the first anti-ctla4 in 2011 and pd1 pdl1 in 2014 how effective were they uh, compared to the treatments available at the time and when we say cure why why do they deserve this big word right that's a great question uh, as much hand waving as i do in the book i was very careful including the word i i, I mock the title breakthrough uh, because it's been plastered on Time Magazine time and time again, and it's become a buzzword. False for starts. False starts and false promises. Um, what's different here is the proof of concept. But what's not different is this is not this is not the silver bullet. Cancer's not dead. So right away, using those first generations of drugs, you were able to ramp up to in in drugs that were totally unresponsive. Especially let's we can talk about melanoma. Each cancer is unique, and there are, there are hundreds. of diseases that we call cancer, cancer, diseases of mutation, but also your cancer is going to be different than mine. So, but putting that aside, I talked to stage four melanoma physicians and those patients. I wouldn't be able to talk to those patients very, very long normally, because as the doctors told me, they didn't see the same people in their waiting room over and over again. Uh, that was a death sentence. Uh, right away, that went from 20%, uh, 20% cure, and meaning full remission, didn't come back, then up to looking like 40%, exactly where the numbers are now. I, I don't know because PD-1, PD-L1 turned out, it's sort of like the everything goes better with Coke. Turns out it's always good to uh, block the secret handshake, no matter what else you do. So if you've got, if you're a company, as you know, that has a potentially effective cancer drug that's, or maybe marginally effective, don't you want to know how effective it will be if you take the brakes off, if you actually let it do what it's supposed to do? So everyone wants their RC cola, cola. And so there are something like, you know, 26, 
hundred different uh, clinical trials around different varietals of PD-1, PD-L1 right now. That made a massive difference. You know, 600,000 people die in this country of, of cancer, at least last year. And this, so when we say a minority of people respond, we mean less than half, which is still a massive number. And in some cases, you know, you talked about those checkpoint inhibitors. That's making an enormous difference. Combining that with chemotherapy, which is the next generation of, of sort of the next stage of development where we find it's not chemo versus immunotherapy. It's if you explode a cancer cell, basically all those little, remember those little, the proteins studded like the Christmas ham, those go everywhere. Those are like wanted posters. Those are what tell the immune system normally what to reproduce for and to get ready for. You block the cancer's ability to stop the distribution of those, of those flyers, to shut down the, the flyer distributors, they end up being called antigen presenting cells or dendritic cells. They're these blobby things. And it really does work that way. They just hear you, hear you and read all about it. And here's a picture of the bad guy. And who is supposed to, you know, T cells supposed to recognize, is that your, that's the one you're supposed to recognize? Boom. It goes into a clone, turns into a clone army of millions and millions geared just to fight, to recognize and kill whatever has that. Now you're vaccinated against your cancer. And increasingly that's the direction of cancer immunotherapy, which is essentially to make custom vaccines to become, become your own custom vaccine factory for against your, your cancer. So that's a, a, a quick arc that goes from how effective, you know, th that minority uh, response is to what we're already seeing it, it moving into now. So using a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, it actually, they just work. So they actually work really well together, right? Because immunotherapy relies on you to, it relies on the, to help the body find the bad guys and chemotherapy blasts the bad guys and, and makes it super easy to recognize. So they're very symbiotic in, in their approach. That's right. And a lot of the other approaches that are happening now that are very exciting are other ways of making it more obvious what the tumor is and how to, how to attack it. That could be uh, viruses that, that that love tumors that inject themselves and make the tumor express di you know different proteins, different mm -hmm. cloves on the ham that make it really obvious for the immune system because they haven't really that tumor hasn't developed a, a a sneak around that protein or you know CAR T cells these specialized RoboCop cells which are designed specifically to recognize. Ultimately, what we're, tr we're trying to get them to do is to recognize the antigen, the, the, the clove <laughs> on you that's unique to your cancer. And a massive step forward happened just this last uh, year, actually in the last, I'd say it was announced in the last month. Let's, let's talk about CAR-T because now we're just moving, we've moved to a different tech epoch again with CAR-T. Because mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. this first generation of immunotherapy, most, most of what the book covers is about these checkpoint inhibitors, mm -hmm. which is saying getting, our own, getting your existing T cells to do the fighting. CAR-T is different. CAR-T is actually getting, is just like training a whole army of T cells outside of your body and then putting them back in. Could you maybe get into kind of the whole CAR-T apparatus? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so this book took me four and a half years and it wasn't four and a half years to write. I actually wrote it fairly quickly. <laughs> it was, I thought I was going to write it in a year and it turned out I needed to put PhD time into being able to destroy what I thought I knew and start from scratch. For instance, I really didn't recognize, I didn't realize that your immune cells, let's say your T cells, weren't just uh, on patrol for all different sorts of bad, bad guys, uh, foreign cells. What in fact, those, in fact, you, as I mentioned, you have millions, billions of different specialized types of T cells, each one designed to recognize one foreign protein. And you'd think, the, in fact, you only have like two or three copies of each 
one of those floating around, which seems incredibly unlikely, of course, that you're ever going to, you know, the, the chance Harry met Sally between the right T cell <laughs> and the right tumor cell, except that they luckily they have these singles bars called lymph nodes. Nobody ever told me about that either. I always didn't. I, I, so there are these things that I sort of thought I understood. Turns out I was wrong. That basic understanding is essential for understanding what CAR T and other whole cell or adoptive cell transfer therapies are about. The idea being, okay, ideally you have in you, if you've got cancer, you have a T cell that can recognize that cancer. Now you want it to do that. You want it to be in the same place and you want it to not be shut down by that cancer. Now, while we're trying to figure, and then you want it to, you know, it then activates into a clone army, millions and millions of, of replica, uh, uh, replications of itself. There are a lot of things blocking it from doing that. We're still figuring out the basic science of that. Meanwhile, can we just make a whole bunch of copies of the right T cell? Is there some way of doing that? CAR T is a, the C comes from chimeric. It's really about making a monster T cell. You're making, you're taking the T cell that's got, it only has eyes for one protein and you're saying, nope, now you only have eyes for this protein and you're giving it the right protein to look for. Now that RoboCop uh, cell, we could, by the way, it's a living drug Inject it once, it'll be in you forever, is a cell, it's part of you. Uh, we can grow up armies. We know how to do that, of this stuff. We can make billions in buckets, basically. That's right. In a matter of weeks. In a matter of weeks, really right. quickly. Right. And that, so CAR-T is incredible because it went from, you know, there was a, a type of childhood leukemia that I talk about in, the, in, in this book with a young girl named Emily Whitehead that was a death sentence for, you know, most people could survive it, but the 20% that didn't were dead. And... A CAR-T cell made, designed especially to recognize the protein on her cancer cells, which is a liquid cancer, a blood cancer. So it's floating around. We'll talk about that in a second. Was so effective that it, 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 it cured her. She's done. And there's so many problems with, I mean, aside from the tragedy, horror of childhood cancer, you know, nobody's obviously pro-childhood cancer. Other therapies, chemotherapies, we, one thing we don't talk about is it really takes a toll on the IQ and the rest of the body of those kids getting that much stuff thrown at them so early. Even if, you, if they beat cancer, they've got another problem in life. Um, so this is an enormous win. And then the question is, can we do that with other cancers? Can we make other targets? And just recently, and of course, you know, can we attack solid tumors? And just recently, uh, as I say, a month ago, it was, an, it was announced from Memorial Sloan Kettering that they were successfully targeting a protein that's commonly found on solid tumors. And this is phase 1B, but 20 out of 24, I think, were, uh, were, were responders. And there are 2 million people with that protein. So, uh, 20, 20, out 20 out of 24. And that's no good. It is 1B, it's, you know, but, but it's, you know, Michael Saldane was in, uh, involved in that. He was involved in designing the first car. To, he, these, are, these, are, these are not fringe players. This is, the, this is one of, of many golden targets right now, which is can we make car T a single, they call them the serial killers of the body, right? Because they're, they, one can kill hundreds of thousands of, of cancer cells. We can, you inject an army, you're done if it's the right army and you and it's you, and this is the future the science fiction future of 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 cancer is figure out which proteins are unique to your cancer that are not by unique meaning they're not on your other body cells make sure you take all the handcuffs off the immune system with probably with checkpoint inhibitors and a cocktail of other things and design a something like a car t cell or clone a, 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 a or, or find the t cells that are already recognizing that cancer grow them up into an army 
uh, and and reinject them and have that all done by deep learning is going to be a big part of it. Uh, and there's no reason ultimately you couldn't just do that in a you know at, at your CVS. So, but it's working already, and that that's very exciting. The idea that solid tumors are are being targeted—that's the process of CAR T. And and CAR T, for those who have been fo- who haven't been following it, it's it's been great for basically liquid or blood-based cancers for for a while. Right. Uh, it wasn't clear they could do solid tumors, and just last month, month, month week. Mm-hmm. Other than now, I was just at the American Association of the Cancer Researchers Institute. You know, thirty thousand people converging on on Atlanta and all sorts of exciting stuff uh, was announced. And that was, that was uh, a part of that announcement as was the announcement of progress against uh, pancreatic cancer and a similar thing, chemotherapy plus a checkpoint inhibitor, plus something called uh, OX40, which helps. So there you can have an agonist that boosts the immune system or something that just prevents the immune system from getting downregulated or having the brakes put on it by the, by the cancer. This push for the immune system and the, blocking of the of the breaks um plus the i mean the the, the, um, the chemotherapy resulted in well i mean again it's relatively early phases but hugely well funded and very very exciting and we're actually looking there's been no progress against this up against that disease i was just two weeks before that with a woman named judy perkins who had been you know the nih almost everything in my book everything that we're dealing with at one point or another came through the nih and the national cancer institute in, in terms of its development. And so we paid for it, uh, which is a nice and also another mm-hmm. great reason to support basic research because oftentimes nobody really knew what they were looking for or looking at, and they would have been considered a failure, except that it's added to our knowledge and, and, and brought us where we are. But I was speaking to a woman who was with one of the, the, the champions of immunotherapy, has been laboring in the trenches for you know 60 years at this point uh dr Stephen rosenberg down at the nih judy perkins um they did what i was talking about they found a t-cell that had responded to her cancer it buried itself in there and then it shut down but it was there they took it out they grew it up into an army in a bucket and re-injected it into her now they did that with a bunch of other stage four metastatic breast cancer patients most of them didn't respond and they've been trying to do this forever judy perkins has no cancer anymore and she was in hospice. She was on her way to hospice. And the question is, okay, how do we make more of her? What mm. happened with her that didn't happen with the others? Find the difference and replicate it. And so that's the phase we're in now. Right, right after the discovery of all these checkpoint inhibitors, it was the throw the spaghetti at the wall phase where we said, oh my gosh, we've got these piles. You know, I was showing this picture. All of these are, uh, these are some of the different things you can try and the different stages. And what I'm looking at here is a list of, uh, alphabet soup, anti-ox 40, anti-CTLA-4, anti-CD27, anti like you can go on and on. And then every all these things in combinations. And we'd love to understand exactly how they work and what they work on. But the first impulse was, oh my God, it works. <laughs> so let's right. just, so, so there was an explosion for that. And then there's been a bit of, you know, we learned, okay, we're going to have to understand what we're doing, especially so we don't waste the time of not only the, the, the money of development, but the time of the patients who don't have a lot of time to choose. Definitionally, is it true, therefore, that every cancer that exists must have some mechanism to switch off the immune system? That's a great question. Yes, because otherwise the immune system would do its job. So it has some method of switching off, evading, downregulating, hiding from, some, some way of avoiding what the immune system is supposed to do. And now that we know that, I mean, there may be an exception. I, it, you know, this is the Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns category. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now that we know that, it changes entirely the way we look at the problem. 
And so that, and it's brought in people from all sorts of different fields that would never have considered, first of all, if you were smart and young and thinking about a career in medicine or science or whatever it might be, immunotherapy was definitely not it because it was the laughing stock. They couldn't figure it out. They could, you know, it was just now that this pinpoint of light, this, we made cracks in the wall and we're realizing the opposite is true. This is the most interesting field to be in. It's wide open. Nobody's touched it. That's right. Draw all the best talent to research it. And right. And and the synergetic collaborations that are happening at, at every level. And that's why you have, you know, Sean Parker of Napster and Facebook fame throwing money into this as a and for collaboration through uh, the Parker Institute. It's why you've got these all these other initiatives. You've got some of the more interesting companies are those that are going back and doing something very much related to what you see Coley doing, taking, you know, listeria, taking bacteria and saying, we had the secret sauce before. How can we modify that and use that as just one more component of, you know, uh, to make cancer recognizable by the immune system? So people are going back to Coley's formula. Right now, we don't have anything approved that's actually descended from Coley's original recipe. Not the Coley's toxins, although I understand you can still, they were still being made in Germany until very recently. And you can apparently still find them off market, black market in, but the problem with Coley's toxins is they really weren't, they weren't standardized. Coley had a great deal of luck with him. A lot of other people didn't, but he was he was an artist uh, because it wasn't really quite a science, <laughs> you know, regulating fevers and so. But these sorts of of therapies now these are these are in clinical trials. These are in human in human trials, um, and they're related to what Coley did in, in that in that way because we're recognizing oh we can use bacteria to interact with the you know with the immune system and in fact what, one of the things that's changed one of the most interesting things since I uh, I published the book there's it's hinted at but I didn't couldn't be definitive is this information uh, starting with these studies that show uh, probiotics seem to get in the way of effectively using those checkpoint inhibitors so cancer patients that are taking checkpoint inhibitors shouldn't take probiotics because they don't work as well. Interesting. Interesting. Which tells you your gut flora is talking to your immune system and it's all part of this dance. And we sort of knew this, but again, one of the things I did not know before I started this book, I always assumed that fiber, so I shows you how, you know, I'm a science writer, I'm a contributing editor with Wired and I don't know the you know basics of, uh, and this is why you have to start over. I always assumed fiber just sort of cleaned you out. Like, you know what I mean? I thought it was like, mm-hmm. you know, a loofah sponge. You know, that's what it was really for. It was like a colonic or something. It's totally wrong. It's hay for the horses. You've got critters of all sorts living down there. They all eat different stuff. They don't eat your food. They eat the stuff that's attached to your food. And you have to feed them. And you want a variety of them. And so what's I think the future is going to end up being cancer immunotherapy plus it's going to be you know fecal transplants or right. or tons of microbiome stuff going on right and and feeding them the right things it's you can't it's not just feeding your gut the right right elements but you have to have the right the right critters in there in the first place so suddenly and by the way there is no proof there's no scientific evidence that uh, that probiotics do anything good for you this is a this is like the, you know they're sort of they're it's like one of those words like electrolytes you know, sort of so this is really pretty i think pretty it's interesting when i'm eating fiber i'm really actually feeding my gut bacteria i'm not feeding myself right okay. that's what it's for and wow. it never occurred to me and by the way they eat as a species we used to eat 4000 different things a year and now we eat you know 160 if you really break it down i get the same thing for lunch every day <laughs> I, yeah i order from three caviar places <laughs> well it makes me want to go and you know eat dirt around uh, the world in places where people don't have cancer 
you know, and change my diet. I just wonder how much, you know, this is where it gets, and it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating field. This gets a little bit uh, uh, off it, but that was an important discovery. That was just announced also a few weeks ago that not only, so that tells you something. It tells you something that, that there is that this immune dance. It's been developed over millions of years. And the stuff living inside you, that it's part of, you know, it's, it's actually the majority of us. And we can't separate that from the cancer, from the expression of the immune system. To, so, it, so understanding this dance more fully really becomes the um, part of the job. Awesome. If we get back to the kind of maybe just the roadmap of how we get to a cure for cancer. So we, we early 2010s, we've found these early checkpoint inhibitors. Now we have CAR-T working in both liquid and solid tumors. Um, and combo therapy is is really raising the effective rates of, of treatments. What, since the publication of your book, have you found to be the most exciting or have we made the most progress? I guess maybe help us chart the path to actually getting above 50% response rates from these patients. Right. It's a great, great question. The, when the book came out, I'd say it's almost maximum excitement period. Also, most people had not heard of this. I mean, scientists had, but even many doctors really were considered this so fringe, they didn't recognize that everything had changed. So, and the checkpoint inhibitors and the early success of CAR-T and the fact that all these things have been cooking for, you know, some in some cases over a century and certainly over decades, but they just seem to be popping at the same moment. The expectation was great. This thing is going to start rolling downhill. We have all these additional targets to look at. And, and there was a little bit of a cooling off period. So it, things we thought, great, if, if that's good, that plus that, it's going to be even better because we know that that's a, and it turns out it was counterintuitive. We we had to go back and look at some of the evidence. So there was a little bit of a of a of a cooling off period. Was this last year? Or? This is pretty much last year, okay. where, where all these studies came back and said it's still complicated. It's there. We now know it's possible, but we need to go back and look at the basic science and not just throw everything at the wall. So the most exciting things have been the discovery of of that these combinations are so effective and so meaningfully effective. That's where you get over 40%, um, where you start getting true responders. And again, the responses of immunotherapy, the promise of immunotherapy, what's so exciting about it for, from a patient perspective is that we're not talking about, you know, if, we, if you really parse the numbers, it's an extra month or two of life or it's an, it's a, you know, it's a little bit before your remission or whatever it might be. And it's, it's a matter of averages and, and, and you're paying a big price for that when it works. Uh, it's often a durable and sometimes complete response, which is to say, when it works, you turn on the light, the immune system recognizes cancer and it, it's, it's cured. It's cured. That's an entirely different proposition. So getting to that further point, uh, we have, we're recognizing that all tumors aren't the same. There are cold tumors and hot tumors and tumors that are in the middle. There are some tumors that are highly responsive, some that for some reason are not. We've only recently recognized, and I'm trying to, there's something new in the New England Journal every week, but uh, only recently recognized, okay, even tumors that don't seem to express uh, PDL one on their outside. This is the one thing we know how to block, one of the things. Some of those were, were responsive uh, to anti-PDL1 drugs anyway. And, and we also found that some uh, tumors that didn't have those also seem to be uh, uh, shutting down Im the immune drugs that were designed for blocking PDL one So this was confusing. Turns out cancer sucks. <laughs> cancer doesn't play fair, which is how you win, apparently. It was making little bombs. It was sending out packages 
vacuoles filled with the PDL1 that would end up, they'll find their way into eventually down to your lymph, lymphatic system or the area around. And so shut down things at the base. At the, wow. So, you know, so these realizations, and they're going to be one after another after another. I, I, it's hard to say when we'll call the next. This is a breakthrough the way penicillin was a breakthrough in that we understand, ah, this thing that never worked works and now all that's possible. And that's the direction to look in. And by the way, it was the only one that was ever going to work because we were never going to poison our way out of a dancing uh, drug. Now that we reckon it, but it's so what will be the next huge breakthrough where we, you know, I, I think we're going to see another five to 10 years of ticking along, but meaningful ticking along. It's not the sort of, well, we thought we changed everything and, and we didn't. It's expanding what that what that car T can do and making that off the shelf. I mean, if, if the car T I'm talking about, the new one, uh, works with that new protein target, that's 2 million Americans a year that suddenly are just going to be able to have their cancer targeted by RoboCop. That's enormous. I mean, and for those 2 million people, that's a, that's a breakthrough, right, right? right? So oncolytic viruses that I mentioned, these bispecifics, these things that are sort of like you, you something, something that's that will target a cancer cell that also has something else chained to it that will attract a T cell that force them force the meeting. Um, those turn out to be really important. There are something like 3,700 different compounds and combinations being looked at right now. Um, and usually these are generational leaps. We're talking about a situation where the physicians tell me, uh, the, the researchers, the MD, PhDs tell me that if they can't cure their patients today, the goal is to keep their patients alive so they can see what's coming tomorrow. And it's not one of those always on the horizon things and generations fall with wait, waiting for that to happen. It's it's stuff that's coming out around the corner that we that we can expect. So, you know, without too much hand waving, the consensus is that we're on that track and that we can expect maybe to have this to be a contained disease within well, within our lifetimes. I, I hope not whatever this may be. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book yet, definitely go read it. It's an incredible book. You know, buy it for the first half and then stay for Chekhov's notes and the end notes, which are <laughs> equally as interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, we'll continue the conversation on Twitter. So if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to reach out. Thanks, guys. Thank you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.